Lawyers for Governor Holcomb and the Attorney General go to court. We'll have the latest and we'll hear what the governor has to say now about his emergency powers and the state's vaccination efforts. Plus more of our interview with former state superintendent Jennifer McCormick and a recap of the president's meeting with Vladimir Putin. It's all ahead this Sunday in Focus. Good morning and happy Father's Day. I'm Dan Spieler. This past week, the showdown at the State House went to court as a judge heard arguments from Governor Holcomb's attorneys and the state's Solicitor General representing the General Assembly and the Attorney General as the governor and fellow Republicans do battle in court over the governor's emergency powers. Kristen Eskow has the latest. At a hearing over Governor Eric Holcomb's lawsuit against the Indiana General Assembly, the governor's attorney argued Holcomb has the right to defend his executive powers. The attorney general has the obligation to defend the constitutionality of the statute, which puts him at odds with the governor. And so in the case of a conflict, we think the governor has the right to hire counsel. The law at the center of the suit allows the General Assembly to call itself into special session. The legislature eventually overrode the governor's veto, leading to the lawsuit. Holcomb's attorneys argue Indiana law allows him to hire outside legal representation for the suit. However, Indiana's Solicitor General told the judge that's not allowed without Attorney General Todd Rokita's consent. This is about the state of Indiana. The governor in his official capacity is the state of Indiana. And the General Assembly has said uh, the state of Indiana is represented in court by the Attorney General. This is a case of first impression because we've never had anything quite like this before. Attorney Abdul Hakim Shabazz says if the case moves forward, it could be a while before we find out whether the governor will succeed with his suit. This goes to our constitutional form of government and who has what authority to do what. You know, does the legislature you know, have the authority to call themselves into a special session? All right, Kristen joins me now live in studio, and you had a chance to ask the governor about this on Thursday. Yeah, that's right. I asked the governor about this dispute, and it was the first time we've spoken with him since Attorney General Todd Rokita filed that motion to get the suit thrown out. How would you describe your relationship right now with the Attorney General? Uh, we're friends. We have an honest disagreement about a constitutional issue. But I'm not against uh, whatsoever the legislature coming back and dealing with this, one, I'd call them back. Two, I offered that. Three, there's a constitutional amendment process that's pretty clear to me. Um, I also recognize that I don't have a law degree. Uh, and if uh, others disagree with that, so be it. And we'd, we'd settle it one way or another. And we will. Governor Holcomb wasn't in the courtroom for Wednesday's hearing, but says he's feeling pretty good about his chances of succeeding. I am uh, blessed with a good legal representation, and we'll let the we'll let the uh, hearings play out. Holcomb's battle in court comes as Indiana lags behind surrounding states in COVID-19 vaccinations. Holcomb says he still doesn't believe a vaccine lottery is the way to get Hoosiers vaccinated, and is instead focused on increasing access. But how do you encourage people to take advantage of that access if they don't? See it's any a slog. Sense? It's a slog, and it's going to be a grind. And you know there is a, I can't. Um, change reality. If there are some people who are just dead set against it, um, it's it's uh, their personal responsibility. Although he didn't stop Indiana University's vaccine mandate, Holcomb says he's against public institutions requiring the vaccine. I do support private businesses making that call, but not, not public uh, institutions. 
And while the vaccine is still a requirement at IU, the school did walk back some of those requirements in the face of some political backlash, at least in terms of whether actual proof of vaccination would be required. Okay, Kristen Escal, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Meantime, the case numbers continue to go down across the state. Data from the state health department shows more than 99% of new cases that we're seeing involve unvaccinated Hoosiers. Lindsay Stone spoke with local health experts this week. Lindsay? The Indiana State Department of Health reports the odds of a fully vaccinated person being hospitalized with COVID-19 is 1 in 50,000. The odds of an unvaccinated person being hospitalized is 1 in 525. Health experts say that statistic shows just how effective the vaccine is in preventing hospitalization. But still, some Hoosiers have decided not to be vaccinated. The vast majority of people who are getting COVID right now, and of course then being hospitalized, are unvaccinated. Dr. Sean Grant is vice president of data and analytics at the Regan Street Institute, says the COVID-19 vaccine significantly lowers your chance of being hospitalized with the coronavirus. The rate of hospitalization among vaccinated people is 94% less than the unvaccinated I reached out to the state health department. It shared the data collected between January 18th to April 30th showed 99.3% of new COVID-19 cases occurred in people who had not been vaccinated. You have a, a significantly, massively lower risk of being hospitalized if you um, receive the vaccine. At the same time, vaccination numbers are declining across the country. In Indiana, overall, we're seeing a, a steady decline Actually, Marion County has sort of shown recently sort of a, a, a stabilization of the rate. I think that's evidence that getting the word out can help. We're really trying to push a big campaign, a new digital campaign out there, trying to address our 20, 18 to 30 nine-year-olds. Dr. Virginia Kane, director of the Marion County Public Health Department, says the 18 to 49 age group accounts for 43 percent of current COVID-19 cases in the county. Take that vaccine, uh, protect yourself and your loved ones. Dr. Kane tells me her department is also using pop-up clinics to make it even easier for Hoosiers to get vaccinated. She says vaccination remains the best way to ensure a fun and safe summer. Reporting in the newsroom, Lindsay Stone, Fox 59 News. Lindsay, thanks. Vaccinating the world was a big topic at the G7 in Geneva. So was cybersecurity as President Biden met face to face with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Washington correspondent Anna Wernicke has a recap. The conversation lasted three hours and 21 minutes, a lot shorter than what the White House originally expected. But nonetheless, both Biden and Putin walked out of that meeting saying that a lot was discussed and now there's a lot of work to do. Russian President Vladimir Putin arrived first at the villa in Geneva, Switzerland. Then President Biden arrived. The two leaders first sat down with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Putin's Russian counterpart before allowing other aides to join in on their conversation. The meetings lasted nearly three and a half hours. After two hours there, we looked at each other like, okay, what next? President Biden says the overall conversations were straightforward. Putin called the discussions constructive and pragmatic. We don't share the same positions in many areas, but I think that both of these sides showed a willingness to understand one another. President Biden says he pressed the Russian leader over the recent cyber attacks on U.S. businesses. If in fact they violate these basic norms, we will respond. Cyber. He knows. 
Putin denied that Russia was behind the attacks, but added that Washington and Moscow will begin consultations. We've reached agreement about that, and Russia is prepared to do it. President Biden says the two also discussed human rights, strategic stability, and Ukraine. He says now the focus shifts to what happens next and making sure both sides keep their word. The two leaders did find common ground in some areas, including returning the ambassadors to their posts. They say that the exact timing on that is still something that needs to be discussed in the coming days. In Washington, I'm Anna Warnicke. Back to you. Anna, thanks. On Wednesday, Indiana Congresswoman Victoria Sparts posted this statement saying American leadership and peace through strength are important for stability around the world. Some recent policy decisions by President Biden she calls concerning and says they're emboldening our adversaries even further. Meantime, President Biden continues to push for a new infrastructure bill here at home. This as Indiana Democrats tour the state to try and tout the benefits of the American Rescue Plan. One familiar face on that tour, a former Republican, former State Superintendent Jennifer McCormick. I spoke with her about it last week. It's really exciting. I've enjoyed being back on the road to talk about the American Rescue Plan. It just provides a ton of opportunity for kids and for families and communities and businesses and the state and actually our entire nation. For uh, schools across the state of Indiana, what are some of the most uh, pressing needs, things you're hearing from people in education and in other circles about you know, where we need to go from here coming out of this pandemic? Yeah, it's exciting because our communities in Indiana are getting about uh, $6 billion and our schools are getting an additional $2 billion. So that money will be used for a lot of important items such as the learning loss, which is mandatory to address. And, you know, that's a big piece of COVID that we're all very concerned about. Teacher hazard pay, you know, infrastructure for safety and just being smart with our buildings, air quality, water quality. So there's a lot of good impact that's going to come out of this. It also so hopefully we'll ensure our schools are getting back to some normalcy in the fall, whatever that may look like, um, and, and allow parents to do what they need to do as well, because it's all systematic and, you know, it all impacts um, what, what we all do. You've said many times that you don't enjoy politics, but you have done a number of events out on the road um, with, with Indiana Democrats, and some have even uh, mentioned you as a potential candidate for governor one day. Have you officially switched parties and, and what's your reaction to those who, uh, who, who may list you as a potential candidate uh, for office? Are you interested in running for governor? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. You know, forever I've been very clear that my voting past has been quite checkered. I've always been one to vote for the candidate that I think could get the job done, whether it was a Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian. I, I always voted for the person I believed in and I was aligned with some ideologies, not that you're ever 100%, but um, just someone that I felt could get it done and understood the need of the people. And right now I feel like the Democrat party for, yes, I have switched parties. I feel like they are very people centric. They're very people oriented. I think they are showing a lot of compassion, very much common sense, but I also too am, am quite fiscally conservative. And I like what I'm hearing from them as far as being smart, not wasteful, but usually, but really going down to that essential need and, and addressing that of the people. So for me, I don't, I don't love politics. I've not made that a secret, but I also appreciate good leadership. And when it's good policy, we need to celebrate it. So I have no plans right now of running for anything, but I've always been clear that I will help those who are really doing the right thing for people and for kids and for our communities.
All right, my interview there with former State Superintendent Jennifer McCormick. Coming up next this Sunday in Focus, the Supreme Court upholding the Affordable Care Act. We'll talk with our panel and with a former Indiana congressman about that next. And celebrating Juneteenth, the new federal holiday signed into law this past week. Straight ahead. All right, welcome back. Joined now by our panel, Abdul Hakim Shabazz with IndiePolitics.org, former communications director for the Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner, Republican strategist Corey Wood joining us today, and you, Indy political science professor, Dr. Laura Wilson. Great to see you all. Let's start with this court battle, right, between the governor, the legislature, and the AG. Abdul, what were your takeaways from this hearing this past week? And any insight at all, any hints, tea leaves as to how you think the judge might rule? Um, well, it's always uh, interesting to try to figure out how a judge is going to rule in a case like this because we're in uncharted territory. We're, we're boldly going. Seen anything like yeah, this. we're boldly yeah. going where no man or woman has ever gone right. before. If I can use a Star Trek reference here, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the attorney general was citing case law from 1978. The governor's office was citing case law from 1852. Just to give you an idea of, of how far back right. uh, folks went. If I had to say the judge was leaning one way or the other, I would say he's probably leaning a little bit toward more towards the governor. Uh, just some of the questions that he asked, but uh, it's anybody's ball game, and we'll yeah. probably know. Uh, by the end of the month, uh, what the judge is going to do. But either way, this is going to decision is going to be appealed. It's going to end up in the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's the timeline we've been hearing. Jennifer, are you surprised it's come to this? The, the the governor and the AG battling it out in court. I'm never surprised by anything in Indiana politics. I mean, Republicans are in charge of everything, and so when you have that, and as I'm, I am a Democrat, but I believe in split government, and I think it works a little bit better because when you don't have that, and you have one party in control of everything, like we do right now. They fight each other. And honestly, like this fight is happening all across the country between legislatures and governors. Sure. But here it's playing out between the governor and the guy who wants to be governor next. So right. it's a really interesting dynamic. Corey, how, how are Republicans in the state viewing all of this, especially with you know, some candidates already making plans, as Jennifer mentioned, to possibly run for governor themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think this absolutely has ramifications um, in 2024. Um, but the to be completely honest, um, just as um, Abdul said a little bit earlier, uh, there's not a lot of precedent here, and uh, this is going to be uh, the ramifications and the extent to which they're going to affect the race um, is to be determined um, as this thing plays out um, in court over the next weeks and months. Yeah, Laura, it could be a couple of weeks, as Abdul mentioned, until we hear from the judge, and this decision could have a, a pretty big impact on the way the state of Indiana is governed, what this means constitutionally. All those ramifications uh, certainly will be momentous as well. Absolutely. I, I think it's easy to get focused on the personalities and the individual policies, right? But this is setting a larger precedent. And it's not just with regards to any particular administration, but what our expectations are for the responsibility of the executive branch, for example, and what roles and rights that they have. As Jennifer said, similar battles are being played out throughout the country right now, but this one's a little unique. And to Abdul's earlier point, we're using a constitution back from 1851. Not all of these things are very clear and there isn't an obvious line of precedent. So what comes from this will certainly set the groundwork long past this administration, long past these particular politicians for our understanding of what these powers and responsibilities really are. Okay. Speaking of the courts, this week the Supreme Court upholding the Affordable Care Act, Texas and 17 other Republican states, including Indiana's Attorney General Todd Rokita, argued that Obamacare's insurance requirement was unconstitutional. The justices voted 7-2 to two to dismiss that lawsuit 
On Friday, I spoke with former Indiana Congressman Baron Hill, whose vote for the ACA likely cost him his seat in Congress in 2010. I'm not surprised by the ruling, uh, but I am elated. This is the third time that the Affordable Care Act has been valid validated by the Supreme Court. It means that 31 million people in this country are going to have access to health care, including hundreds of thousands of people here in, in Indiana. Different take here from current Indiana Congressman Larry Bouchon, who said from the beginning the Affordable Care Act was not the direction to take this country. He says this flawed policy obstructs patient care by placing the government squarely between the patient and the physician. Bouchon himself is a, a physician by trade. He says, while I'm disappointed in the Supreme Court's ruling, I respect their decision and will continue to fight against uh, what he calls Obamacare's defective policies to ensure our nation's health care system puts the patient first. A Abdul, your thoughts on the court's decision and the impact here in Indiana? Well, the one thing to keep in mind is the court didn't rule on the merits of Obamacare. Right. They ruled on procedural matters and right. basically said the Republican attorney generals did not have standing. In other words, they, didn't, they couldn't show some sort of injury. And so that kind of gives Obama, Obamacare critics a little bit of leg to stand maybe on. Maybe a leg to maybe stand, maybe on, leg to stand on. If they but, can find another path. To yeah, but for the most part, the legal fight uh, is done. It is over. Uh, if you want to change Obamacare, you got to go when Congress won the presidency, because that's something they're going to do, but his legal fight's pretty much done. Jennifer, your thoughts on what Baron Hill had to say there? Truly, for him, that was a vote that, that could very well have cost him his seat in Congress. It, it probably did. Uh, I was working at the party at the time. Um, and I think what he said is 100% accurate. Um, Republicans need to stop to, to use uh, Congressman Bouchon's words, fighting against Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. Try making it better. Work together. As Abdul said, the only place to do that now is in Congress. So I take them at their word that they're going to do that, and they should. Corey, your response to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, this just goes to, to show that once you put a big government program in place, um, that it's hard to remove. And quite frankly, this ruling doesn't change anything um, about the ACA, um, that it didn't meet its obligations as um, it was put forth uh, to the American people. Um, it was supposed to increase uh, our help with affordability and accessibility, um, and it did neither. Um, and I think, um, especially um, from the Republican front, uh, we're united in putting together uh, some a policy that decreases um, costs through competition, uh, brings in the free market, um, and then also protects those with pre-existing conditions. That's something that's uh, really important uh, to Republicans and, and Democrats, um, both across the aisle. But one thing I do want to point out, um, based on this ruling is back in October, um, Supreme Court Justice um, Amy Coney Barrett, a Hoosier, uh, was attacked, uh, spent tens of millions of dollars were spent from Democrats and Democrat super PACs um, attacking her, saying she was going to end health care um, and affect those with pre-existing conditions. And uh, I think she proved them all wrong. Yeah, she she, she was among the seven who voted in the majority on, on that ruling. Let's talk about one of the other big stories uh, this week. Uh, Laura, the president's meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin at the G7. What were some of your big takeaways uh, from that get together? Well, that was a four hour meeting, which quite frankly, feels like a very long one to me. But of course, we know it's just the beginning. There was no major change in policy, nothing immediate to come from it, but hopefully a conversation and dialogue to very clearly convey our disagreements with Russia, but also potential for places to come together. Um, I, I believe President Biden, his administration, tried to be very forceful in terms of issues of cybersecurity and um, human rights violations. Those are things that are really important. And our country has been at odds. We've had a very contentious relationship with Russia for literal decades, generations. 
Um, of course, four hours is just the beginning, but if there is an opportunity to collaborate in some sort of way without giving up our principles, without standing down from our values, this is very important. And we'd be much better to be at least working on the same page rather than enemies. Cybersecurity was a big topic, and this was a big moment for the new president on the world stage here. How, how did he do in your view, Abdul? Quickly. Um, I thought he did fine. Uh, like I said, it's it's uh, it's the first of many get-togethers right. with Vladimir Putin, so yeah. I wouldn't worry too read too much into it. Uh, but at least the world at least didn't make a whole lot of news, which is actually a good thing. All right, thank you all. The panel will be back for winners and losers coming up. Also ahead this Sunday in Focus, the new federal holiday signed into law this past week, celebrating Juneteenth. We'll talk about that after the break. Juneteenth is now an official federal holiday. President Biden signed a bill into law this week commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. Specifically, it marks the day enslaved people in Texas were finally freed on June 19, 1865. A bill creating the federal holiday passed Congress with nearly unanimous support this week, with celebrations taking place yesterday on the 19th across the country and right here in Indiana. Time to wrap it up with this week's winners and losers. Laura, you're up first. Sure. My two winners are Opal Lee, the 94-year-old woman who helped work with Congress to pass Juneteenth as a federal holiday, an important memory in our nation's history. And also all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day and thanks for making a difference in our lives. Abdul? Uh, for me, it's U.S. Senator Todd Young for his uh, Chinese legislation through the Congress. And also uh, all of us here at Fox 9 because we actually see each other face to face and the communities of COVID pandemic is almost over. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> Corey? Yeah, Marion County GOP and Joe Elsner, the chairman, uh, for finally um, having an organization that is holding uh, Mayor Hogsett's feet to the fire in the city council. Um, hopefully we can get Indianapolis open um, and our cities uh, safe again. Jennifer, you get the last word. Abdul stole mine, um, but to all of us here at Fox 59 and CBS 4 to be back in person. I may be a little bit rusty, but it is really glad to see you all and the world is Healing. Back to normal. Give you a fist bump there as well from across the room. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us this week and happy Father's Day. We've got much more on our podcast. There's also much more news ahead on Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus.